This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country. I think we're all familiar with the phrase chocolate box village to describe some picturesque rural idyll. But perhaps the place I'm visiting today has more right to claim that description than most other places in Britain because, apart from anything, it's got a very well-known chocolate bar named after it. I'm in Bourneville Village, about four miles from the centre of Birmingham, and it was created by the Cadbury family at the height of the 19th century to give its workers a decent place to live and work. In fact, I'm in the shadow of the Cadbury factory now, in all its red brick square splendour. Cadbury's isn't owned by the Cadbury family anymore, of course, but those who run Bourneville Village attempt to fulfil the legacy of the Cadbury brothers, even today in modern Britain, and that's what I'm here to find out about for the programme. Uh, I also thought I'd eat a lot of chocolate. It's a good excuse, isn't it? We're looking at the first three properties which were built on the estate, three pairs of semi-detached properties, two of which certainly in the art and craft style. But it's significant, isn't it? Just looking along the street here, you see uh, England's green and pleasant land. Other side of the street is harder or harsher in terms of the landscaping. I've come to the edge of the Bourneville Village estate now. What you can hear is a very busy intersection of roads. With me is Peter Roach, who's chief executive of the Bourneville Village Trust, Duncan Cadbury, chair of trustees and part of the Cadbury family, of course, and Bob Booth, a lifetime resident here in Bourneville, Bob, and also chairman of the Bourneville Historical Society. So between the three of you, I think we've probably got all the knowledge there is about Bourneville Village here, gentlemen. Thanks for joining me. Peter, perhaps you could just give me a sense of how far the estate goes. Moving across from here, we have a 1,000 acres, which uh, George Cadbury um, purchased back in um, the 1890s and then endowed to um, the Charitable Trust, which he formed to manage and maintain it, i.e. Bourneville Village Trust. You would not know that we are four miles southwest of the city centre of England's second largest city. It's very much developed as a garden suburb. And, Duncan, each of these houses has a notable outside space, don't they? They have a, f- a forecourt that sets them off from the road and they all have a back garden too. Yes, the back gardens are the most exciting part because George felt very strongly people needed to be able to look after themselves. So the original gardens were large enough for them to be self-sufficient in growing their own vegetables. There was always an apple tree planted... I've just walked through some turn-of-the-century double arch doors. I'm walking out now into a beautiful quadrangle. As I breathe in, I can smell the roses coming through on a gentle summer breeze. There are plenty of flowers, trees, uh, broad lawns, a real sense of space here, and the beautiful red brick bungalows that, that surround it with their leaded windows and sandstone around the doors and windows. Um, Peter, what was the idea behind Bourneville Village? It stems back to a George Cadbury's vision that there was surely a more healthy way of living for people who were living in Victorian terraced properties in inner city Birmingham, for instance, in the midst probably of a slum clearance programme. At the time, this was very much part of rural Worcestershire as opposed to part of Birmingham. And a good way of doing that was to purchase land here in Bourneville and to start to develop good quality 
um, affordable homes, not just for Cadbury workers. This was an opportunity for people to live in England's green and pleasant land. And you heard the quadrangle, uh, which is the vision actually of George Cadbury's brother, Richard Cadbury, got a first-class example. The first Cadbury to come to Birmingham was Richard Tapper Cadbury. He was my great-great-great-grandfather, and that was back in 1794. And he moved into the city and had a shop. When he had his two, well, several sons, but one was John Cadbury, and in one of those shops, John started making cocoa. And after a few years, this proved so successful that he bought a warehouse. He saw what was happening around him. The the conditions were appalling, and John Cadbury was a a real social driver for change. I think the average life expectancy in the century then was about 40. And he felt if we could find an environment which was nice to live in, people would be healthier, so they'd work better, but there'd also be a sense of belonging. And that's how the move developed and they eventually moved the factory out in 1878. Perhaps you can talk me through a little bit how Bourneville Village developed because it didn't start off at a thousand acres did it? No, no it started off with about 300 acres and some 300 houses. Sadly Richard Cadbury who was responsible for the quadrangle we're in at the moment he died in 1899 and George was very concerned that should he also die that all would be lost and it's now grown over the years with trustees developing and buying more land to a thousand acres, about 8,000 houses of mixed tenure, something like 25,000 people live on Bourneville, so it's like a small town, but it doesn't feel like that. 10% of the estate isn't housing, it's actually open space, parkland, woodland, and then we've got the community involvement through the four community halls on the estate. Well, Bob can definitely speak to that, Bob, can't you? Because uh, you've lived here all your life. As a boy, did you have a sense that this was different the place that you were growing up or, or is it something that came to you in adulthood the, the kind of appreciation of the principles behind Bonville Village? No, I think we realised when we were youngsters, my wife and myself both parents uh, being Cadbury family uh, workers, we knew that there was something special about living next door to a chocolate factory but, but also <laughs> the, the facilities that we had, I, I was actually born on Bonville Green uh, we knew that was special, we were taught to look after it in our, our way as, as best we could Could you smell the chocolate? We could indeed, yes, but there are stories about (laughs) smelling chocolate and that means it's going to rain. Um, Oh, really? So I should be glad that I can't smell any today then because it's a beautiful summer's day today. It is indeed, yes, yes. Come a little further into Bourneville Village and you reach the oasis of the grounds surrounding the Roheath Pavilion. We're sitting at the side of a fishing lake on warm summer day with a lovely breeze coming through listening to the water feature there in the lake is having a suitably cooling effect as we watch the ducks and the swans sailing around with me is jim guy and gladys wheatley members of the same family brother and sister in fact who've both worked at uh, cadbury's in their time so glad let's start with you because you were you were there first weren't you you worked there before jim so how did you end up at the factory they used to come around the local school and just to ask if anybody would like to work at Cadbury's, we had to sit a little exam, and I started work in '38. And when you got there, first of all, did, and you saw the sorts of things were going on in a chocolate factory yes, as a 14-year-old, I mean, were you were you excited <laughs> to be there? All the lovely scented, and of course, at that time of the year, they were. Um, Decorating the eggs. The Easter eggs. The Easter eggs. I loved it. 
I said, oh, yes, please, I want to work there. And what did you end up doing? Were you decorating Easter eggs? <laughs> no, no, no. I was in the room where they did the decorating of Easter eggs. I was mopping the floor and, oh. and cleaning around the wet chocolate machine. <laughs> I managed to get a job in the stock room, both Gladys's husband and uh, my uh, wife's brother were both in the same place, so yeah. we had a time of our lives. It, so it was a real family enterprise, oh, yes. wasn't it, working at Cadbury's? Yes. yes. Most people where we lived worked at Cadbury's. And what was it like to work there because I've been hearing a lot about you know the work that uh, the Cadbury brothers did setting up oh, Bourneville yes. Village and all yes. that sort of stuff I mean did you get a sense working in the factory glad that your welfare perhaps was more important than it might have been oh, working yes. somewhere else oh yes because like, you've got our own dentists and um, you had a, a room if you didn't feel well you could uh, go and have a lie down or Looking back, I suppose you could say they were benevolent employers. And what was it like to actually work in a chocolate factory? Because I guess for most of us, you think chocolate factory, you think, I don't know, the Roald Dahl story, Willy Wonka or something with rivers of chocolate and Oompa Loompas sailing boats along it. It was very similar. (laughs) (laughs) You you never had the fear of going hungry. No. Uh, I used to be on trolleys originally, and then you go all around the factory, and chocolate was on the move then, and you saw it was on the move. They were in giant tanks, and uh, you'd stop and have a talk to someone, and you could put your finger in the tank and Mm -hmm. taste the flavour. And, of course, if you were fortunate enough to uh, be in the area where they made the fruit and nuts... You oh, had you had the fruit and the nuts, <laughs> so it was a very pleasant place to work. Yes. Walking away from the lake now towards the pavilion, I'm struck by how sort of pseudo-colonial it looks, really, in terms of the architecture, with the rows of big arched doorways with double doors and then on the on the first floor above a, a, a lattice brickwork balconies and shutters either side white shutters and I notice that there's a cafe up in one wing of the pavilion but what I want to do now is find out really what sorts of things go on for people who live around here today rather than back in the time when the Cadbury's were running the factory just up the road so I'm going to meet Mark Isgrove who's the pavilion manager. It's hard to put into words exactly what it is because there's so much that happens here. Um, we have 32 different football teams, rugby teams, uh, runners clubs, cyclists. We have community groups fishing in the lake. We have a bowls um, club that meets on site. We have the general community in the park. We have a cafe that's open every day of the week and a bar. And we have various youth groups um, and other activities and classes for the community. What I can't work out, though, is where you have all the space for your football and cricket pitches and that sort of thing. Currently just across the road we have six full-size football pitches, a rugby pitch, three or four mini pitches and nine v nine pitches and there used to be 70 pitches for football, for tennis, rugby, bowling, cricket, uh, hockey and golf. It was extensive so the, the land that in sort of the 1970s and 80s was then sold off 
to build houses on, which obviously there was a huge demand for, um, got reduced, and so we're now left with still quite extensive, but six, seven, rather than 70 pitches. The mind boggles, 70 pitches. I mean, there must have been so many hours of sport going on back in those days. We found old records that state that one season in the early, early years, tennis, there were 679 matches of tennis played, which is over 7,000 hours of tennis. Wow. Well, Mark, how about we go inside and you can show me around, maybe pick some highlights to have a look at? Yes, it's going. Let's go inside. And you've brought us into, I suppose, what counts as a ballroom or something, does it? You've got beautiful wood block flooring here and a, and a disco ball <laughs> in the middle of the ceiling. Yes, this is has been used, obviously, the past 20 years. And I can show you some photos from various groups, from Bournemouth Trust residents to their, their members to the Cadbury family. They've all had parties here, discos, functions. They're actually part of an exhibition and two of your colleagues are working on setting that up at the moment and uh, working very hard there so we won't distract them. But this is all part of celebrating 90 years of the pavilion. Yes, over the next year we'll do a series of events. Um, the main theme of the event is collecting people's memories, their stories, their photos. Um, there's one here of a group of uh, old men, just men, wearing silly hats from the 1930s when Bourneville's Trust staff had a staff party up here and there's another photo here, it's a fabulous photo when the lake froze over and in the 1940s they were uh, ice, ice skating on the lake, nowadays yeah. health and safety would never allow that but <laughs> you've got kids have pulled the bench onto the lake itself, throughout the years families, residents, people have all used this place and that's something we want to capture it must be hundreds of thousands of people over 90 years who have who've seen this place and the place built by Cadbury's as a venue for the community, still being used for the community, with the real heart of what George Cadbury's, you know, designed. I've come the short distance to Bourneville Village Green, where there's a, a very different sort of building to look at here, because it's octagonal. It almost looks as if you should be able to spin it round, actually, on its axis. Trevor Workman uh, can tell me a little bit more about it. This building was given by the employees of, of Cadbury Brothers, as they were in those days, in 1914 to George Cadbury and his wife as a silver wedding present. He turned this, he gave it over to be used as an amenity for the village. So it's called the Rest House. It's a wonderful connection that we've made between the Carillon, which George Cadbury was responsible for, and the actual Rest House itself. It's now being used as the Carillon Visitor Centre. So there's 15 Carillons in the UK, but only four of them are of the size of the Bourneville Carillon, which has got 48 bells. Having navigated the narrowest spiral staircase I've ever seen, I've come to the roof of Bourneville Village School, which is where the Carillon lives. And here, among the dark stone of this Victorian building, I can see the patinated copper of the bell tower itself, which is a beautiful, beautiful bright green colour, contrasting with these heavy, dark metal bells. And it's automated. I could see the, the yes. system of levers and pulleys here, and the clapper is on the outside of the That's bell, right. isn't it? These wires come up from the clock room and are operated via a sort of a, a cam, or like a musical box with studs on, so that as it revolves, um, it sort of has the effect of pulling these wires, which are connected to the clappers. There is a mechanism downstairs which enabled it to play tunes automatically. But these um, canvas rolls have holes punched in them. When the canvas roll moved, 
it would play a tune that resembled the punched out holes on the canvas. George Cadbury had it arranged that in the morning, when the factory workers went into work, it would play something like New Every Morning is the Love, a hymn tune, and at the end of the day it would play something like The Day Thou Gavest, Lord is Ended, and secular tunes were played at lunchtime when the workers came out for their lunch break. Anyway, we're going to go inside now, right. Trevor, because you're going to, to play the carillon for me, aren't you? And I'm very excited about this because I've never seen one in the flesh, let alone heard it played. Well, a carillon is an inst a musical instrument. It is not just something that makes bells sound. It can be played very expressively. It can play all types of music, from jazz, we say Bach to Beatles. It makes its noise via a bell rather than a string or a pipe. So this keyboard here, when the key is struck, the linkage is connected to a clapper on the inside of the bell. And if I press one of these keys now, and it needs to be understood that because we're in the cabin, you're hearing a clattery noise from the key as well as the bell. Now, if you were outside listening, you wouldn't hear that. This is just one of our 48 bells. So they're all tuned as perfectly as bells can be tuned. And what a sweet music that makes. This looks like a loom almost, a weaving loom. Doesn't it? You've got, you've got pedals and levers here, and then, and then you have long lines going down behind. I suppose maybe like piano strings or something like that, but these are much more mechanised. At first glance, yes, it would look like a loom, but when you, when you look more carefully, you can see that it resembles a piano keyboard because it's got the equivalent of black notes on the top row and the equivalent of white notes on the bottom row. And then there's a, two octaves of pedals, so we've got four octaves of keys, 48 bells, from the middle of the keyboard down, there is the option of playing that particular bell with the pedals. And that's purely to give more capacity to play more notes at, this, at any given time. Because in the main, the instrument is played by the hands rather than the fingers. They're just a, a row of levers, aren't they, really? You know, wooden, polished levers, which have gone dark with use, actually. This, this gets a lot of they use, are. this instrument. Yeah, this, this, this keyboard is, is oak. It's made of oak. It's... The whole instrument is very, very substantial. I imagine when you play, Trevor, I mean, there can't be anyone in Bourneville who, who doesn't hear it, given it's, it's, its central location, uh, just opposite the green. How often do you play, and what sort of reaction do you get from, from residents? The carillon is played, almost without exception, twice every Saturday. But the people of Bourneville, I think they are very, very proud, not just of the area, and it is a, a unique place to live and to work, but this is one of the amazing facilities, the unique facilities of Bourneville. You're going to play it for us now, aren't you, and, and give us an idea of, uh, of just what it can do in terms of the musicality and so on. What, what are you going to play for us? Right, well, maybe we'll keep it English, shall we? And I'll just play a very familiar piece of Elgar, Saludamore. Brilliant.
is amazing. I've never seen anything like that. I'm somebody who can't pat my head and rub my tummy at the same time. So how you managed to get all four of your limbs doing different things all at the same time on this machine, I've no idea, Trevor. Congratulations. That was fantastic. Thank you very much. The other thing that strikes me is how robust you are with with some of the... I mean, you are literally thumping some of those keys with your fists, aren't you, when you play? And then at others, very delicately, almost a little finger or a very light touch. That is really the sort of finer skill. I mean, the main skill is to be able to recognise the keyboard, to get its sort of um, dimensions and be able to play the notes accurately. Somebody that plays the piano, can read music, can get to that stage fairly easily. But the finer sort of art is to play it musically and to try, as I've said, you know, to make it sound exactly as the composer intended. And what struck me watching you is the physicality of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a warm day today, you've played that, you know, you've, I presume, worked up a slight sweat doing that because your whole body is involved, your, your body and your mind. It's a, something that, I suppose, requires everything you've got to play it at your very best. Yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a very strenuous activity and... Uh, it's very easy to play lethargically, but for me that gives no satisfaction. You know, I, if you come up to play, then you, you give it all. I've never able been able to not give it everything. You know, so I am known as a bit of a sort of a, a robust player. <laughs> we're not in Bourneville anymore. In fact, we're not even in Birmingham anymore. We've come into Shropshire now, near Telford, to visit what is being called Bourneville Mark II. Back with me is Peter Roach, Chief Exec of Bourneville Village Trust, and Duncan Cadbury, Chair of uh, the Trustees. Gentlemen, thanks for, for joining me here and bringing me to see, I suppose, the attempt by Bourneville Village Trust to, to take the legacy of uh, the Cadbury vision for, for how life should be lived in these villages into the next generation, really, I suppose, Peter. This is indeed the 21st century version of Bourneville. It happens to be here in uh, Telford in Shropshire, so it doesn't look like uh, Bourneville. It looks like a Shropshire village. Just uh, looking around us, we've got the school and community centre. We have offices, we have shop, have a nursery. It's set apart, really, in the sense that uh, there's a special commitment to quality of, of life here and that's yes it's in the bricks and mortar but it's also in the community spirit and the uh, the extent to which the local community is involved in the life of this place and Duncan it really does strike me that this is not an attempt to replicate Bourneville is it because this is a very different look to Bourneville we've got kind of yellow sandstone uh, patio and community areas young uh, trees what's the aim for for this village for the village of Lightmore which is is the name for this area I think it's as Peter said it's it's to create a new community and the, the joy for us is because we've only started here about 10 years ago we really are building the community from the very beginning which couldn't happen on Bourneville in the same way it's a natural community that's developing and the family that are living here are getting very involved in making sure what we do here is what they want. So when the village is complete with its thousand houses, about a third of the area will be built and lived in, and then two-thirds around it will be open spaces, fields, natural parks, open spaces, walkways, round the village, rather than Bourneville, where the villages actually have the walkways through Bourneville. What it doesn't have that Bourneville did have, at least when it started out, was the, the central 
factory where people went to work. Do you think that that matters at all and will it make a difference to the sense of community in this area? It's something we've been very aware of. Uh, as we drove here, we were coming through areas where there's a lot of development of factories and businesses which people would go out to. But, but one has to remember, even at Bourneville, that a large number of people had nothing to do with the factory. They came in from roundabout to live. So in that sense, we're not particularly different. The fact that we've got a 1,000 people living here already, and I suppose if you multiply that up to make complete, it's going to be somewhere like 2,500. There will be challenges for employment, but I think Telford is an exciting place to be because it's an exciting town that is developing itself. So it isn't the worry that one might have thought we would have had. And Duncan, as a member of the Cadbury family, what does it mean to you to stand here in Lightmore, Bourneville, Mark II, in 2014? Do you think back to, to George and to Richard planning Bourneville? I do feel that link. I mean, when he was moving his factory out to the countryside, getting away from the slums and the poor housing conditions and the real pressures that they lived under. And like George and Richard, we're involving the people around us to get it to be what they would like it to be. So as a member of the family, I feel we're privileged to be where we are now. We wouldn't be where we are now without the people who are living around us helping us to develop it. It's, It's very, very exciting.